today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. You know, one of the uh, incongruities with uh, the Doug Ford government, now, of course, they've only been in office a couple of months now, but uh, and, and I don't care what your political stripe is. I mean, you know, obviously we, we knew that it was time for the liberals to get out of there and, and conservatives won the election. Here we go. But then you get into policy. And, and, and that's really, you know, the where the rubber meets the road here, where you have to start talking about how the government's going to get this province back on track, what they're going to do better. And, and a couple of the decisions really have an awful lot of people shaking their heads. Yesterday on the program, we talked about the fact that uh, the Ministry of Health, that's uh, Minister Christine Elliott, uh, have decided to pause the uh, the safe injection site, for the funding, of course, for those. Now, Hamilton has one going right now, and the money's not being cut off just yet. But other uh, New Year's sites in, in places like, say, Catherine's and, and uh, Thunder Bay uh, have been put on hold. Uh, and they say, well, they're not sure if the program really works, in spite of the fact that there is a large body of evidence that prove that, yes, it does. Endorsement by the Ontario Nurses Association, a number of doctors groups, and, of course, public health officials in all those cities. So there is a body of evidence. There is hard and fast evidence to prove that that's an effective program. Then on the other side of the coin, you had the announcement a week or two ago that they're going to fire off and, and just cancel the basic income program, which was a pilot project. And it didn't run across the whole province. It was only in a few cities, Hamilton and Lindsay, right, and, and a couple of other smaller towns. But they said, well, uh, we have evidence that it's useless and it's not working. There is no evidence about that because they haven't even done studies on it yet. It's only been a few months that the program's even been in place, although there was some anecdotal evidence about how good it was. Well, they've, they've canned it anyway. Well, yesterday at Hamilton City Council, uh, they uh, they got an earful from a number of people that were involved in the basic income program. Uh, Hamilton, of course, as we know, served as one of the pilot locations, about 1,000 recipients uh, Lindsay and Thunder Bay being the other places. Now, the government said it's gone. That's it. They're not going to do it anymore. But now these people have come to Hamilton City Council, and i got to imagine the same thing's happening in Thunder Bay and in Lindsay, where they say, wait a second, we made some commitments, we made some, some life changes to try to become part of this program, and now the rug's been pulled out from under us. You guys have got to help us out. Well, actually, what the city can do is pretty limited. Tom Cooper, the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction and organizer of that protest at Queen's Park from the other day, joins us to talk about this conundrum that we're facing right now. Tom, thanks for joining us. Good to have you with us on the program again today. Good morning, Bill. You didn't. Uh, you were not surprised at all by some of the stories that we heard yesterday. I, I wasn't, um, and I've heard many of them. I, I, for the Particularly for the last two weeks, I've been getting nonstop calls from local basic income participants uh, scared about their futures. Um, but also telling some very heartbreaking stories about uh, about the challenges they're facing and their hopes uh, that basic income could turn it around for them. Um, so we we heard some testimonials yesterday at city council. Uh, many of the individuals who who got up and spoke talked about uh, talked about living in deep poverty for a long time, maybe on on Ontario Disability Support Program. Um, in in Ma- Masterman, uh, who who is a really powerful speaker, is is ninety percent blind. Um, got up in front of city council and, and really uh, appealed uh, for council support uh, to fight this decision by the provincial government. Um, Ian, somebody who uh, you know has really tried to get work, but he's he's struggled with mental health illnesses plus his his disability, which has left him 90% blind. Um, But he made a very powerful statement. He said, look, I'm not lazy. I'm not entitled. I'm just disabled. And 
you know, this program should should be there to to help people like me. And um, I, I think that really resonated certainly with uh, with the people in the audience, and it was a full council uh, audience chamber, um, as well as the counselors who were in attendance at the uh, Safe and Healthy Communities meeting. But we heard lots of similar stories that, that are honestly heartbreaking, and I honestly don't know how the provincial government could have made this decision. Well, I know one, and, and, and again, we're just speaking anecdotally from some of the information that I've received on this, was a guy who, who actually was a small businessman. He was an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and through some you know, bad luck through business, lost the business, ended up on social assistance. He was using this program basically to dig himself out of the hole so he could get back up there and, and get back into the business world. That's gone for him now. Uh, and and I guess I guess the biggest thing that's that's been stolen in this program it's not that they saved any money, uh, it's it's lost hope and and, and I think that's that's the biggest concern here. It is absolutely lost hope and and what I was seeing from basic income participants over the last several months was really a restoration of dignity. People who had been living in poverty for so long, who were finally able to see the light at the end of the tunnel and and believe that they could you know, find opportunity, uh, get some new skills, uh, get good jobs. And, you know, that that has been washed away for them. Um, another heartbreaking story from yesterday, Alana Boltzer, who's, who's been on your program in the past, yep. talking about her participation in the, in the basic income pilot. Um, she applied to, uh, to go back to Mohawk. And um, she said, you know, after I got, after I heard about the decision, uh, that the program's been canceled, I'm not even going to open uh, the letter I received back from Mohawk letting me know if I'm accepted or not because there's no possibility that I can go now. Um, it's just, it's out of reach. And and so those are the sorts of uh, human crises we're facing in this decision. And, and it's certainly not just going back to school or, or enhancing food security. I, I think the biggest challenge for people on the basic income pilot right now are is is really maintaining housing and a lot of people and there was a good um, good article in uh, in the cbc hamilton last week uh talked to a young woman named harley who um uh got a new apartment for um uh i think it was 920 dollars a month um just just about a month ago while she was on on the basic income pilot and um, she had been having some challenges with children's aid and, and she was really working hard to try to get her children back and so she moved into this new apartment so she could do that now the uh, basic income pilot's been cancelled for her. not only can't she afford this apartment and she's locked into a lease that her landlord won't let her out of but now she can't get her children back either you know and by the way what i found fascinating about this and i, I discovered just this the other day uh the eyes of the world are on us uh, and, and I know that may sound like, oh, come on, you're exaggerating. There was an op-ed piece in the Washington Post last yeah. week about this government decision to drop this program. And the essence of the editorial was Ford canceled this because he's afraid of the information that could be gathered that would show that it's effective. So he killed it before any data could be accumulated. And and this is the Washington Post. Uh, and, and why are they thinking about that? Because many other cities right across North America are considering doing a similar program, and they're looking at this pilot project to say, is this going to work? Because as you talked to us about this almost two years ago, this is really the first time in North America that anybody has done any substantial pilot program. I know the one in Dolphin, Manitoba some years ago that everybody refers to, but this was hard and fast where they were going to collect data on this and it was going to serve as a template. 
And, and yeah, people like in Washington and in other American cities and Canadian cities were looking at this. Uh, and now I, I, I think we have egg on our face. Oh, we, we definitely do. I, I've been coordinating with uh, some of those other basic income pilot projects around the world um, because they've been asking us about our experience and, and looking at Hamilton and the other pilot communities as a bit of a model for what they want to launch. Um, so I've been, I've been engaging with uh, folks in Scotland because they're going to be launching a basic income pilot there next year. In Stockton, California, the mayor in that, uh, in that California city uh, is launching a basic income pilot. We've had um, media interest from all over the world. Just in the last month, uh, we had Japanese public television come to Hamilton for a documentary they're working on, on basic income, interviewed a number of local participants. We also had um, South Korean public television come in and do the same thing. And um, we've had The Guardian in the UK. Uh, uh, I, I just received a call uh, last week from from HBO. They have a a news uh, news show, a weekly news show called uh, HBO Vice, and they're they're interested in coming to Hamilton to look at this. So yeah, definitely uh, the eyes of the world were on our community for this really critical social policy experiment, which I think could potentially be the most important um, social policy discussion of the 21st century. And, you know, we had the chance to lead here in Ontario, and Hamilton was very much the epicenter of it, and now the future is very much uncertain. By the way, I want to talk about a theme that developed, and, and it's a theme that I heard from a couple of weeks ago, and you brought in some of the people that were involved in this program in the studio, Tom, because I still see this, and I've actually heard it from some of the government members and, and some of their online supporters, that, look, this is money for nothing. These people just sit on their duffs and, and expect to get more money from this. That's clearly not what you heard yesterday. Absolutely not. And uh, if they had taken time and done their due diligence and actually looked at who'd enrolled in the pilot project, they would have realized that 70% of all basic income participants have a job. Now, it may not be a full-time job, and it certainly isn't, uh, it isn't full-time hours um, or a full-time wage. Uh, it, it isn't a, uh, much higher than a minimum wage. Um, but we see a lot of people uh, who are participating in the basic income pilot who are, who are amongst the working poor. So 70% of all people who are in the pilot uh, do have jobs, so they're doing what they need to do. They're just not earning enough at those jobs um, to make ends meet for themselves or their families. So basic income for them was a bit of a supplement, and they might have, they wouldn't be receiving the full basic income amount of seventeen thousand dollars a year. They probably would have uh, been receiving, you know, three four hundred dollars a month as a supplement because when you're working and on basic income. Uh, 50% of, uh, of your income uh, from working is clawed back. Um, so part of the experiment was really looking at how uh, basic income could combine um, with what's really the new reality in the workplace now, you know, lower, uh, lower hours, um, more contract positions, and, and a lot uh, less job security. And, and so that was one of the important things we were trying to test with this pilot. And again, you know, the opportunity has, has been dashed. Well, and, and again, others who are saying, well, these people who got this added money are, are spending it on extravagant items. I, I don't think there's any chronicle ideas of anybody that bought big screen TVs or automobiles with this. Uh, there was one story of a lady who had the audacity to buy a winter coat uh, mm -hmm. instead of getting a handout from the Good Shepherd like she said to do in the past. She actually bought a coat for the first time in her adult life. I don't think that's an extravagance. 
No, exactly. And uh, Michael Hampson was was another presenter yesterday at uh, at City Council, and he he talked about the dignity of being able to buy new clothes uh, for the first time in years. And you know, he had uh, he had previously just had hand me downs or uh, gone to um, you know, gone to charitable organizations to get clothes, but he was able with the basic income to buy buy a new outfit for the first time. In, in quite a number of years, and and he talked about the the dignity that represented for him, and uh, it was like coming out of a coming out of a pit for him, and it was very uh, I think it was very moving. Now this is deja vu all over again for an awful lot of people. Actually, even some of the ones that were sitting around that council table uh, mm-hmm. earlier this week, because been there, done that back in the mid nineteen nineties. Uh, when there were cutbacks in the common sense revolution, cutbacks to social services, cutbacks to support programs, uh, people that required prophecies and, and even wheelchairs and things of this nature found out that there wasn't going to be funding for it anymore. And and unfortunately, a lot of those people came to the city and said, you got to help us. Now, the city, to their credit, back in those days, tried to do as much as they could. But but I got a feel for this, the city councillors at this time because their hands are really tied. They don't have the financial resources to compensate that program. Yeah, and and we agree that the city simply doesn't have the resources to uh, to continue the basic income pilot project on its own. I don't, I don't think anybody's under that illusion. Um, but what the city does have is is a powerful voice and, and influence, um, not only at Queens Park, but but also with other municipalities across uh, across the province and across the country. So they they have they have seats at the. Uh, um, Association of Municipalities of Ontario, for example, which I think can send a strong message to the provincial government uh, that this pilot project w- was really important to continue. Um, the other, the the other possibility that we're continuing to look at and having conversations is, well, if the provincial government simply is an interest in looking at the evidence and, and continuing this project, and I think more importantly, protecting the uh, vulnerable individuals who are promised an opportunity to participate in this pilot, then is is there another option? Uh, So perhaps the federal government um, looking at picking up the pilot project for years two and three. um, I I think that makes some sense. There's the infrastructure's already in place. All the participants have already been enrolled. um, So it would really just be a transfer of, of information of files from the provincial government to the federal government plus the commitment to uh, to fund it for the final two years of the study. And again, one of the things that I really wish elected representatives of all party stripes at all levels of government would please understand, and I think that was part of the message yesterday, is that, look, when you're starting to make these decisions, it it's not just a bookkeeping exercise. There are human people, uh, human beings, rather, that are involved in this, and you're hearing some of their stories. I mean, that, that should be, I would think, in a compassionate society such as we believe that we live in here, part of the consideration. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the one of my biggest issues with this provincial government decision is really the irresponsible nature of, of how the announcement came about. So it was announced suddenly without any plan in place as to how the basic income pilot would be ramped down. Now, a number of pilot participants are... Uh, formerly on Ontario Disability Support Program, um, they may have mental health illnesses, and and this decision is is just exacerbating their anxiety, and uh, we're quite concerned um, for a number of people uh, who who may fall into depression, who may 
you know, have have very negative thoughts about about what their futures hold. And for the provincial government to to make this announcement without any plan in place as to how it's going to be ramped down, all participants know at this point is that they're going to receive their basic income for August. They don't know anything beyond that. And and so I think we really need to uh, let people know what the plan is. Um, the minister said last week at Queen's Park, well, we'll have a long, compassionate runway. And I don't know what that means. Um, I do it know. It sounds like I it's four weeks, Tom. Well, yeah, possibly. But I, 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 quite frankly, Bill, don't trust this government. They promised during the election to keep the pilot up and running not once, but twice. So now they're promising a compassionate runway to ramp down the program. Well, I just don't know what to believe. And um, I think it's really incumbent upon um, our city council again, our community to continue to support uh, these resilient pilot participants so that they do get the justice they deserve. In a circumstance, and now we're getting into a, a real scenario here, if somebody was on ODSP, Ontario Disability Support, uh, and, and, and opted to go into this program right now, do they automatically qualify for ODSP again, or do they have to reapply? Well, that is our hope, and that was the initial intent when the uh, pilot was established uh, under the auspices of the previous government. Now, uh, we hope that's going to continue to be the case, but we're looking at all avenues in terms of protecting the rights of, of these pilot participants, um, both legal and non-legal. Um, so I think, I think there's some valid arguments uh, that the government has broken faith with people, um, there's also another piece to this, because this was an experiment, it was a pilot project, um, and, and there needed to be some ethical oversight of it. And, and so when, uh, when you have this sort of uh, experiment on people, which is basically what this pilot project was, um, there, ne- there needs to be that consideration as well. Are you doing this in an ethical way? And I would argue strongly that um, the government is not doing this in an ethical way. I don't think they did any of their due diligence when they looked at cancelling. Um, I'm sure this decision was made in some dark room at, at Queen's Park on the spur of the moment, um, just saying we don't like this idea of basic income, we're going to can it, without talking to anybody about um, what the uh, what the legal or ethical ramifications of, of shutting it down really meant. Um, so if they don't do their if they didn't do their due diligence, then I think uh, these pilot participants do have some rights, um, and they'll be enforced. Tom Cooper will uh, follow the government's plan on this, uh, such as it is. Uh, hopefully, there'll be some clarity on this, and maybe some good news for some of these folks as well. Appreciate this today, Tom. Thank you, Bill. Talk to you soon. You bet. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Trudeau government is now planning to announce a new statutory holiday. This new holiday, statutory holiday, would mark Canada's legacy of residential schools. Uh, we all, I hopefully, are more aware of that than we were in the past. About a century or so, thousands of Indigenous children were taken from their families, forbidden to practice their culture, and subjected to physical, psychological, and sexual abuse in these schools. It's a black mark on our history, and uh, this is as a result, of course, of, of the work that was done by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Joining us to talk about this idea is uh, Robert Bertrand, who is the National Chief of the Congress of Aboriginal Peoples. Chief Bertrand, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. 
Well, it's uh, great to be here, Mr. Kelly. Uh, let me ask, first of all, I mean, this is obviously, as I just mentioned uh, in, in my my lead-up here, uh, a result of the of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. That, that report actually came out in 2015. Uh, are you surprised that it took this long for the government to act on this? <laughs> no, no. Uh, sometimes... Uh, uh, I always compare to the, the the federal government to uh, turning the wheel of a, uh, of a of a ship. You know, you can turn the wheel, but it takes forty or fifty miles before the boat starts turning around. <laughs> uh, you've you've obviously, I think, you described it perfectly. Uh, somebody else had mentioned the governments move at glacial speed, so you can't expect things to happen pretty quickly. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's right. But better late than never, I suppose, in a situation like this. What's what's your th- thoughts about this whole idea, about this concept, and this uh, this particular recommendation? It's it's as you said. You know, it came out of the TRC. One of the recommendations of the TRC. You know, we're 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 all in favor. It's 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 a good idea. The 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 only problem that we have is that there's been no consultation at all. Uh, I, and I found out about it. Uh, I mean, CAP is uh, the organization that represents uh, all the, not all, but uh, a good portion of the of the off reserve. And we found out about it yesterday in an article in the Globe and Mail. Apparently, the only uh, the only other or, the only organization that was that was uh, that was contacted or was asked for their opinion was uh, AFN. Uh, you know, it, like I said, it's a good idea, but you know, we we would need uh, we would need input also to find out, uh, you know, from the federal government which date are they planning to do it on. I heard uh, September thirtieth. I heard uh, June twenty first. Uh, so, um, you know, what is what is the good, uh, you know, the the best date? Uh, and the only way to do that is for us to be at at the negotiating table and and you know give our point of view. Well, one of the other things that was talked about in that conciliation report, of course, Chief, was uh, transparency and, and, and openness. Uh, I, I guess they forgot that part. They, I, I, maybe they lost your number. I don't know what it was. But, but I found that rather interesting, too, that uh, a number of people I've talked to actually were responding to, a, you said, mentioned the Globe and Mail story and not a government announcement. I would think that the government would be proud to make this announcement and make as much of it as they could. Uh, you, you know, you're 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 absolutely you're absolutely right. Uh, for this to come out in in the newspaper and not, as you said, in, in an announcement from from the federal government, uh, is uh, you know why why is it why did it was why was it done like that? Uh, you know, there's so there's there's so many questions and uh, nobody seems to have the answers. Well, hopefully they do say that there's going to be some dialogue as they move forward on this, and, and I'd like to think that everybody's going to be at the table then. Uh, and certainly you're going to have some ideas, I think, that you'd probably like to bring to the table. And let's start with the date. Uh, as you mentioned, Chief, uh, a couple of dates have been floated right now, June 21st, uh, September 30th. Uh, both of them significant. Do you have a preference? Well, I, you know, I do have a preference. September 30th is you know, would be in, in, and it's my opinion would would be okay. But I mean, we can't. I just can't come out and say September thirtieth if I haven't consulted with the organizations, with the provincial organizations that I represent. I mean, this is you know, this is putting the cart before the horse. We should, you know, we should have had time to discuss this with our organizations. Come to a, you know, come to a a, a table, discuss it, and you know, come out with uh, with uh, a, 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 you know a, a date that everybody can agree on. 
Are you concerned that they're trying to rush this thing through for whatever reason? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know. Do, do, they have, do they have another agenda that we are, <laughs> that we are not aware of? I guess your guess is as good as mine. Well, one of them might just well be that there's an election in a year. Uh, and and it, I guess I, you and a lot of other people in this country, myself included, uh, we we're looking for this government to move on some of these recommendations from the TRC. And, and obviously this is one of them, but, uh, you know, they've been dragging their feet on an awful lot of these things. It seems, you know, they always wait till the last minute. And then when there's, you know... When there's an election on the horizon, on the horizon, that's when you know they seem to be pushing all this stuff forward, and they're pushing so much stuff forward that you know you don't you, you don't have time to 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 give it the necessary uh, thought, uh, you know, to, to to make sure that you're getting it right. But Robert, isn't that one of the frustrations you felt for years and years? Uh, indigenous peoples have probably been mentioned in more throne speeches over the last twenty years, but from both parties. Uh, about we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to make these kind of programs available. Uh, but the long on talk, short on action. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've been I've been uh, the cap, uh, the, the national chief at cap for about uh, two or three years, and and uh, I've, I've the only government that and you're right. It doesn't matter which uh, political strife you're you're with. You know they they've always you know a lot of talk and uh, no action. Uh, but you know, it seems to me that uh, this go- this government here is 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 like I mentioned before, is pushing it forward, and they, they only seem to be consulting just a certain portion of the indigenous population. As I mentioned before at the beginning, CAP represents the off reserve, and right now, you know, as I mentioned to. When I talk to the ministers, when I, you know, I always tell them there are more indigenous people now living off reserve than there are on reserve. And yet CAP, who represents a good portion of them, is not even at the table. You know, explain that to me. Well, it's it's been typical, though, hasn't it? I mean, we've seen this happen with federal governments again uh, over the years. I, I can remember having some discussions way back in, I guess it was in the mid-1990s, uh, about uh, the, the revision of that the Indian Act that had been in play for so long, and Minister Nault was supposed to be bringing everybody to the table, and it just, for one reason or another, they just don't seem to be able to get their act together at the federal level. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, when you try and impose decisions, you know, you know darn well. You know, you might you might get a a, a, a section of the of the population in agreement but you know there's going to be some groups that are that are not that are not uh, that are not in agreement but the best thing to do is bring them around a table let's let's you know discussion i know it's going to take a long time but it's the only way to get everybody pulling on the same side of the blanket because there are some issues that need to be discussed you talk about the date that's obviously one of them uh the other one that 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 i wanted to ask you about is is this whole idea of a statutory holiday uh that's a day off in other words Uh, you know it's it's an official holiday we only have a handful of them here in canada uh, and, and you know the experience that uh, that the Canadian Legion went through, uh, Chief, uh, some years ago when it was uh, floated that maybe Remembrance Day should be a stat holiday, and many veterans associations said, no, 
We'd rather there was education within the school that day, not just a day off, because a lot of people just won't l- relate those two, that education is a key component. I would think that's got to be a priority for you. Yes, yes, it's, uh, that, that is, that is important. But, uh, you know, with, with uh, uh, a, day, a day off, it would give the people the opportunity uh, to go in their own communities, you know, get, get together. You know, if, if there are Indigenous people living in their community, go and meet them. Go and, uh, go and you know, we, we don't have tails. We don't have horns, you know. Uh, a lot of, you know, we're, 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 we're Canadians. We're, you know, let's, let's go meet. Let's meet. Let's, you know, meet your, your, your neighbor sort of thing. It, it, in my opinion, it would give every Canadian an opportunity to do that. Well, and, and again, I'm not suggesting one over the other. I'm just saying that uh, the, the statutory holiday concept, I, and I agree with it. I think it's a good idea. But it has to go hand in hand with, with further education. And as you say, outreach programs on, uh, on both sides to, to have the communities interact more than they have in the past. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, dissension, uh, quarrels, it's because you haven't taken the time to, to understand the other people, the other person's thought or ideals you know let's go out there let's let's sit down let's let's talk let's eat bannock together and 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 i'm i am convinced that a lot of these uh, uh distrust problems will will not all go away but it'll help to dissolve a few I, I want to ask you about this, some of the cynicism that I've heard from over the last 24 hours, Chief, and, and I want to get your comment on this. There are some that are suggesting, look, this is just a patronizing effort by the federal government to try to appease you. Uh, well, they're not moving on what we've talked about as some of the other key issues, for instance, clean water on reserves, housing for, for, for those on reserves or not on reserves. I mean, it's still a major issue, as you know. Uh, and the government seems to be moving slowly on that, and they're suggesting this is really just the art of deflection to try to get their mind off some of those real issues. I, I don't think those real issues are ever leaving your mind, are they? Well, you're, you know, you, you, you're right. This is this is a one small issue, uh, but when you talk, you, you, and you're absolutely right about what's going on on reserve. I mean, we've all seen it on TV. The, you know, the poverty, the, the you know, the housing. But you know, let's not forget the the, the off reserve also. Uh, you know, people people leave the reserves. Why do they Why do they leave the reserves? Because you know they want a better education. Uh, they they want they they want a better standard of life for their kids. Uh, you, you know, these these are the problems that we have to look at. These are the 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 challenges that that we have to meet. And, and and overcome them. Uh, you know, I was talking about uh, StatsCan a couple of minutes ago. You know, the the uh, young Aboriginal uh, population is the fastest growing segment of the po- of the Canadian population. I mean, if we're you know industry, what I don't understand is industry should be should be should be contacting us. Uh, to 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 help train these young people you know there's so much to do and it seems to me that the federal government is not taking the lead on this 
Well, with that growing demographic that you've just referred to, and, and let's connect the dots here. I mean, this is the same government that's saying, look, it, we've got a skilled worker shortage. Uh, there's a ready and willing, and now all we have to do is make them able workforce that could fill a lot of those gaps. You hit the nail right on the head, my friend. Well, this is a conversation we need to have uh, with the federal government, Chief, and that's why I'm, I'm hoping that at, uh, you know within days now they're going to be on the phone to you and they're going to say, look, we all have to meet, we have to get together on this, and, and not just the, the not one organization, but, I mean, there are so many voices that, that are, have to be part of this conversation as you move forward, and this is, this is a big part of it, but if without this communication there's going to be a disconnect. I, what you said a while ago about uh, the federal government being on the phone calling us, uh, I would be one of the happiest persons in all of Canada if, you know, the phone would ring and it would be the, uh, uh, you know, one of the ministers saying, yes, you know, uh, we are starting discussions, you're invited at the table. But to be truthfully honest, I will not hold my breath. Uh, you know, we it, it's a constant struggle to to get them to to at least just try and listen to us. And I understand where they're coming from with this, and I understand some of the recommendations about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Chief, uh, and it's about acknowledging the past, and, and, and that's important. I mean, if you don't acknowledge history, you can't learn from history. But I know that your focus and the focus of an awful lot of the other groups that represent the various populations is also about the future, and, and that's a conversation the federal government has to have with you. Yes, uh, it is. You know, this holiday is 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 a is a good step. It's a good step in the right direction, and and you know you know the the federal government has this federal government has been has been uh, more open than than the, the previous one. You know, I will be the first one to uh, to admit that, but you know there is still so much to do. But don't get me wrong, we we are open. You know, we are willing, uh, not not only willing, but we are we are we are anticipating, uh, 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 you know, f f for them to call to call on us to 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 give our point of view. Let's let's get the ball rolling. I mean, we can't fix it in a year or two. It's going to take probably years and years. You know, maybe a generation. But you know, let's get going. Well, I'm going to let you go at this stage, and hopefully the phone will ring as soon as we finish our conversation, and you can begin that engagement with the federal government. Uh, my fingers are crossed. Chief, thank you so much I for the time. I will definitely let you know. Please do, would you? Thanks again, Chief. I appreciate the time today. Nice talking to you. Take care. That's uh, Chief Robert Bertrand, uh, National Chief of the Congress of Aboriginal Peoples, uh, commenting about the statutory holiday. Uh, looks like the government's going to move forward on this, but, boy, it's going to take a long time to put the pieces together on that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. In a, a, what I think is an unprecedented move, uh, after countless attacks uh, on the media by Donald Trump, uh, newspapers are fighting back. More than 300 different newspapers, big and small, conservative and liberal-oriented, are banding together this week to fight back against Trump's what he calls war on the free press. Even conservative-leaning publications like the New York Post and others are joining in the message. Uh, and this is all, of course, uh, because of Trump's continuous rants against the media and that uh, the whole essence of, of what he calls fake news, which in, in fact is anything that he disagrees with or anything that may contradict what he wants to do. He just simply labels it as fake news. And sadly, too many of his followers simply buy into that without any validation or verification.
Uh, some of the ones, I, I'm not going to read all of these to you, all 300 of them, but I mean in part, uh, even the New York Post, the conservative New York Post, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch, uh, is uh, banded on side with the media on this one. Seth Mandel from the uh, New York Post uh, goes on to write and says, uh, to uh, President Trump, uh, vilifying us will not stop us from doing our jobs. The press isn't scared of you, and in the end, truth will out. Uh, the conservative Bangor, Maine Daily News goes on to say, the media is the enemy only if you don't want to know what your government is doing. I think that gives you a, a tone for some of the editorial comments from over 300 different, and different editorials, obviously, in different newspapers. This is not just one editorial that's being printed all over the place. This is, a, this is a, 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 an outrage by the media about the comments made by Donald Trump. And uh, it's fascinating to see this sort of thing. Now, what the impact is going to be, well, we're not sure. Uh, George Breckenridge joins us, retired political science professor from McMaster University, majoring in uh, U.S. politics. George, thanks so much for the time. It's great to have you with us. No, you're welcome, Bill. Are you surprised by this, that everybody seems to be of, of this common theme now? Well, no, it's interesting that they finally got to that point. I mean, it was organized by the Boston Globe, and it got a big take-up, as you say, about 350 almost of papers, each publishing their their separate editorials, but on the same day. Yeah, it's good to see the press fighting back because uh, Trump's campaign, which started in in his campaign for the nomination and at his big rallies um, of calling uh, everything he doesn't like in the press fake news, and uh, he ends up calling, you know, journalists and newspapers the enemies of the people. That's a very, very serious charge when you think about it, you know. And it goes so totally against the grain in America because the freedom of the press is guaranteed in the First Amendment, you know, of the Bill of Rights. And, yeah, uh, and if you want to get sequential, that's ahead of the uh, the freedom to carry arms. So <laughs> that's that's the second. The, the right to carry arms is second. This was the first one that the that's the founders. The first, one, the first right. one was freedom of the press. Immediately they, after freedom of religion, it becomes freedom of uh, freedom of speech and of the press. It's, yeah. So they the founders knew very well the importance of that. Now every pol- every president and every, just about every politician falls out with the press and criticizes the press, you know, because ultimately their, their jobs are, you know, in op- can be quite often in opposition to one another. The politicians don't want anything critical said. They don't want things exposed very often. And yet that's exactly the press's job to do. So, but the, Trump, of course, as with so many other things, has taken it to a whole new level. And I think really in many ways a dangerous level, because particularly at some of the rallies, which he still holds, you know, he's still holding these... He just loves these raucous rallies. You know, the, he, the, the, the press has felt itself at times in danger against the crowd. You know, they're, they're in a pen at the back, and uh, the crowd turns around and yells and screams at them and everything else. You know. so it's, and, and, of course, the, the other danger is there, were, <laughs> there was the shooting of four journalists in the local paper in Annapolis, Maryland, not, not all that long ago which a lot of people sort of link to the, this general denigration of the press. And if, you, if they publish something you don't like, and then, you, you know, then you take action. And so it's, it's, it's a dangerous thing, and it's good to see such a wide take-up of this idea of publishing, of, you know, of defending their crucial role, their central role in democracy. A couple of things that, that I think we need to, to put on the table here, George, and your comments, I think, are, are well-placed here. Uh, first of all, there's a certain hypocrisy, not just with Trump, but with people that advocate for what Trump's doing here. 
uh, because these same people love it when that same press vilifies they, with people they consider to be their political enemies. In other words, if you're if you're a right leaning person and they start going after like they did Obama on Obamacare and so many other things, yeah. they eat it up. They just love it. Yeah. But as soon as they start, start turning their attention towards their person, well, exactly. all of a sudden it's lies. It's all, well, well you know you, that's news, what yeah. it's it's crap really. But I mean that's, that's the reality right. here. That's right. Well, the, the other interesting thing, is there's a poll published in The Guardian today in relation to this. And the latest poll, which was taken just a couple of days ago, um, shows, uh, you know, the, the people are asked, enemy of the people or part of democracy, which is it? And enemy of the people is only getting 26%, and, and part of democracy is 65%. The other element, and, and you and I have had this discussion in the past, but I think it's very germane to this discussion. Uh, there is a difference between news and editorial comment, a yeah. big difference. And and uh, and what Trump has tried to do here to try to validate his twisted logic is conflate those two. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah. You know, Sean Hannity is not a newsman. He's not a reporter. He's an <laughs> he's a he's an, an an editorialist. He's an opinionator. That's right. Uh, as are the people on MSNBC, et cetera, et cetera. That's not, that, that's yeah. those that's not news reporting. No. That, and it's, there's a total difference. In other words, that's opinion. And by the way, when they talk about freedom of the press in the U.S. Constitution, and, and even on this side of the border, uh, that's what they're talking about. It's not just reporting what's going on. It's the right to have opinions. Yes, indeed. indeed. And, 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 George, that's been around since 1776, probably before that. Oh, before that. Probably. About yeah. editorial opinions, both right-wing and left-wing on key issues. And it's, as you say, you always have the right to disagree with it. You can write letters to the editor. Now, of course, you have social media media to respond to these sorts of things. But Trump wants to trample all over that and said, I only want to hear from people that think I'm great. Right. I mean, that basically means Fox News. But, but even in, in the case of Fox, I don't watch Fox News, I must admit, but even in that case, people say that they do have some serious journalists during the day, you know, who are trying to report the news. But then it's overwhelmed by the likes of Hannity and uh, that breakfast show in the morning. <laughs> You know, which is all opinion, which is all opinion, and uh, and and all going one way. You know, it, it's it's so clearly that one's so clearly biased. But nevertheless, they are free to do that. You know, they're free to do that, and they should be free to do that. But 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 again, there's a historical perspective on this that Trump ignores, and obviously his his followers ignore, and that's that this has been going on, and and you can almost differentiate in in the American political scene, and, and for that matter, to a certain extent in Canada, uh-huh. that that there are Democratic and pub- Republican newspapers leaning that way. Yeah. You know, the New York Times has been vilified, of course, as being left wing because yeah. they always seem to favor uh, the Democratic Party. Uh, the Los Angeles Times over the other coast is just the opposite; it's conservative leaning right. newspaper. Uh, the New York Post in, in in New York, of course, is Murdoch owned and very right wing, and, and and papers are divided like that. Radio station, television commentators are divided like that, and and it, it all seemed to coexist. And you know, one well, would balance they, off against they, the other. There'd be great debate, and and Trump's apparently saying anybody that's not on my side is is lying. Well, if you go, that's you, dangerous. Excuse me. If you, if you go back to the nineteenth century. In, in that that period, most of the newspapers were partisan newspapers. So the notion of of uh, competing partisan newspapers, the notion of a sort of an independent, uh, neutral f- uh, press reporting the facts, like the New York Times and people like that, is a it's a 20th century invention, really, in America. But we're so completely used to that. You know, he's, he's, he has a funny relationship with the New York Times. I mean, he's he's a you know he's a New York boy through and through, obviously. 
And uh, on the one hand, when, he, when there's something he doesn't like, he called the failing New York Times, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But he keeps giving them interviews. You know, he, he, he longs for their support and favor, I think. That's really it, particularly with his hometown newspaper. The other person, of course, the other uh, business he's been attacking is Amazon. And why is that? Because I'm Jeff Bezos, the head of Amazon, owns the Washington Post. And yet Bezos, of course, says, you know, it's completely independent. I don't interfere. But in order to get out of the Washington Post, he attacks Amazon and Jeff Bezos. So. Well, and, and Bezos has already had some pretty strong opinions about Donald Trump anyway. Well, yeah. Uh, notwithstanding what, you know, what may or may not be printed in the Washington Post, Bezos himself, as, as Mark Cuban, of course, another uh, rather wealthy guy. Yes. Uh, and and there's, there's a few of them. I mean, they're lining yeah. up like that, obviously, to state opinions. But, but I, I, again... The thing that I think a lot of people need to be concerned about, and, and I read a number of these editorials this morning from a number uh-huh. of these papers. Thank God for the Internet for that, uh, George. Right, sure. But, but the common theme here is whether you agree with Trump or disagree with Trump, we need to have alternative opinions. And even That's the right. right-wing newspapers are saying the very same thing. That's right. That we have, I, and it goes back to that classic line, which, which you know so many Americans seem to have forgotten. Uh, I may disagree with you, but I will defend to the death your right to say what you want to say. Right, you know, and and that and that's lost now. In other words, it, we need to have that exchange of opinions, and and it just it's 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 being obliterated right now by by what's going on with this this BS about fake news. Well, journalists are journalism is a profession, and all professions have their own code of conduct. And so, whether people whether the paper is conservative or liberal or or trying to be somewhere in between, the journal the real journalists on these papers or on television. Um, all understand that, you know, they all understand the, their role and the importance of their role and the fact that, you know, they're, they're, they are not publishing fake facts. Occasionally they get things wrong, like everybody does, but, uh, it, you know, their role is essential. It's, it's the opinion types like Hannity and people like that who, who have no, no restrictions, no code guiding them at all. You know, they're, they're not professionals. They're simply making a lot of money. Uh, appealing to a particular kind of audience, but but therein lies the difference. And Hannity's a great example of that. As as is Rachel Maddow on MSNBC, or yeah. or Chris Hayes, or any of the other. Chris Matthews comes to mind. Uh, they they may in fact present facts, but they're going to be their presentation of facts. It's going to be their perspective on facts. Oh, it's no, it's not no, news. There's no question that they're liberals. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of it got to do with the quality of what they do. But I mean, Rachel Maddow particularly is a very bright woman. And a lot of her stuff, what she's very good at is putting the day's news in a kind of historical, very often a historical or longer perspective. She's really very good. She's the only one who really does that. But there's no question that she's a liberal and is very critical of Trump. That's true. But you can combine, you can, you can hold on to that and still be doing, you know, sort of really good in-depth analysis. Whereas somebody like Hannity, and there are people, there are conservatives like that. What, George, that, like and, and you know something, and that's and that's what's changed here. Yeah. That's one of the 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 dynamics that has changed. Uh, D- Donald Trump is not a conservative. I mean, he's a he's he's a he's he's yeah, a Donald he's Trump Donald fan. Trump. Yeah, All right, right. Uh, and you know, with a conservative cloak, and that's what he used to get the election and get the nomination. We that's, get that. Right. But there are true conservatives there. George Will is a true conservative. Yes, indeed, indeed. Uh, Bill Crystal is David Frum. There's a whole long no, list they're, of them. They're real, they're genuine. And and they are f- as flummoxed as as many of us are by saying, look at uh, this 
is ridiculous what's happening to the media. These guys are all very conservative and have always had very conservative values. They didn't like Barack Obama. They didn't like any of this stuff. They're not fledgling. But the reality is, is now you're starting to see them pop up on some of the MSNBC programs because they, they figure, you know what, I can't be with these other guys anymore. Well, that's exactly. I mean, somebody like Jennifer Rubin on the Washington, Washington Post or Ross Douthat of um, you know, the New York Times. There's no question these are conservative people. You know, in the old-fashioned sense, but as you say, they they are now appearing on MSNBC because they want Fox News won't have them because they're very critical of what Trump has done to American conservatism. Well, and, and, to the I, and they've written books. All of them have written books about it. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, Frum's book Trumpocracy, I think, is is a very poignant uh, description of exactly what's happening. Frum is, is yeah, a hardcore uh, conservative that worked in both Bush administrations. Sure. Uh, and and he's 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 upset about this that that basically Trump has hijacked the conservative movement in the United and States the Repu- and destroyed the Republican Party more or less. Yeah. In the meantime, at least it's very hard to see where how it can come back. It's become a kind of a cult, you know, around around Trump. Is this a tipping point, though? I mean, when this many newspapers uh, have the same common theme, both as you say, both conservative and liberal newspapers, mm-hmm. basically calling the president out and said enough is enough. Uh, you know, we've got a job to do. Uh, and if you don't like it, that's that's too bad. Well, as I say, the the poll shows that the only group, the only you know, if you, if you break it down by various groups, education and age and everything like that, the only group where which where a minor, a majority, fifty one percent, say the the press is the enemy of the people are Republicans. Every other group is in the twenties. You know, and and the, the, for the part the, the press is part of democracy is in the sixties. But the only group, so the only group who's listening to him, who's you know who's still with him, is fifty-one percent of the Republican Party, and, which and is it, basically his base. But George, there's also a segment within that in a poll that I saw last week that indicated that a, a number of those Republicans, hardcore, that are going to believe anything Donald Trump says, no matter what, yeah. also feel that he should have the power to shut down any media outlet that has a contrary point of view. Well, that's and, and how could they... This is the United States of America that's know, supposed to be purporting freedom. That's Russia. That's Soviet Union. That's Pravda. Well, if you're willing to, to say they're the enemy of the people, I guess that follows. No, it is, it is alarming that it's as high as 26%. But on the other hand, it is only 26%. And he's been hammering away at this you know, ever since the campaign. So he's the only people who are listening to him who seem to be influenced by this are, you know, are this base that he keeps talking to. And, well, and he's not making much of a dent, much of a dent in the rest of the population at all. Hopefully, this, on uh, this issue. Yeah, hopefully the the editorials this week will will have some sort of an influence on that. We can only hope. Yeah, I think so. It's good to see the press rallying and answering back in a calm, professional way. Yeah, exactly. George, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. Well, you're welcome, Bill. George Breckenridge, of course, uh, poli science professor from McMaster University, majoring in U.S. politics. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.